food. <laughs> Listen, if you are fasting today, or if you are struggling to hear people talk about food without getting hungry, trigger warning, you might not want to listen to this episode because we have some great food discussions with cookbook author, like best-selling cookbook author at that, Matt Moore. You're a man. You want to become a better one. You want to level up. That's nobody's task but your own. This is your starting line. This is your boot camp. It starts now. Welcome to the Manlyhood Mancast with Josh Hatton. Hey, fellas, grab your calendars because we've got an event coming up that you do not want to miss. So October 28th, which is a Saturday of 2023, from 5 o'clock to 8, we are going to relax and smash right on Minard Run in Bradford, Pennsylvania. It's an axe-throwing place, and it's going to be our Manlyhood Season 7 launch party. We are celebrating the fact that we've been running for 10 years. We're celebrating that this is the launch of our seventh season, and we're celebrating over 700,000 downloads, well on our way to a million downloads. So get pumped for a killer night with hanging out with the guys, good times, and axe throwing. It's going to be great. So the folks at Relax and Smash are giving us a fantastic deal. Normally it costs 15 or 20 bucks if you want to throw. They're going to let us do it for 5 bucks a person. And there's going to be a food truck on hand as well. So if you want to throw some axes, grab some dinner, hang out with the guys, and have a good time, that's what we're going to be doing on October 28th from 5 to 8 p.m. So, yeah, it's going to be great. Bring your friends, invite your neighbors, let's go party in style <laughs> so we can kick off this Season 7 of the Manlyhood Mancast. Uh, again, that's the Manlyhood Mancast Season 7 launch party, and it's happening on October 28th, 2023, from 5 to 8 at Relax and Smash on Minard Run in Bradford, PA. Listen, even if you're from out of town, this is worth coming into town for because we're going to have a good time. So come join us and celebrate together. See you guys there. This is the Manlyhood Mancast. Gentlemen, welcome to the Manlyhood Mancast. I'm so glad you guys are tuning in. You know what? Uh, season 7 is shaping up to be probably my favorite season ever on the Manlyhood Mancast, and we are getting a tremendous response from our listeners who are weighing in, who are giving us their thoughts and sharing it with other people. Guys, we are doing really good things here, and I'm not saying that to toot my own horn because it's our audience that's helping us to do great things here. And the men that we're interviewing, like today's guest, Matt Moore, he is a celebrated author, uh, an entrepreneur. He's a, a, an accomplished cook, a musician, a pilot, an adventurer. He's got all kinds of fun stories to tell us, but we're going to talk mostly about food. You know, he has uh, been featured in the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, uh, the BBC, the New York Times, the Art of Manliness, along with all kinds of national and worldwide media outlets as he talks about food. And he's got a really, really awesome perspective on life. You hear a lot about uh, Mediterranean food and Middle Eastern food and, and about Southern food, and it all comes together. And uh, his work, A Southern Gentleman's Kitchen, uh, put out by Time Books, is fantastic. So I want you guys to tune in to this great interview that we had with Matt Moore. Matt, it's great to have you on the Manlyhood Mancast today. Thanks for being with us, man. Hey, thanks so much for having me. So, Matt, you are, uh, I know you just put a book out, uh, and you are a butcher and a, a chef. What, how, what is this? How, is, how does this work, man? More of a bullshitter. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm not a butcher. I'm not a chef. Uh, I typically am more of a cook and a and a writer is probably the the more apropos uh, way. But I guess when I do write books, sometimes I get commingled into being a pit master, or a grill master, 
or in this instance, a, uh, a butcher, but my job is to, to really tell the stories. Yeah. Well, that's kind of the fun part. And that's what I'm hoping we can do today is kind of hear some of your story and some of the stories that, uh, that you want to talk about and share with us. So why don't you tell us, uh, how you became a, a, a bullshitter? <laughs> uh, from birth. Um, <laughs> no, it's, um, man, it's been a, it's been a long journey. Um, I born and raised in, uh, just outside of Atlanta, Georgia, um, and, and played sports growing up my whole life, uh, and also music as well. And so, uh, those worlds kind of collided for me when I went to school at the university of Georgia. So go dogs for maybe a few of your listeners. Uh, I think we've climbed the ranks the last two years, but, um, I had a great time playing music. That's what ultimately brought me here to Nashville. Um, and then, uh, kind of created this, this whole world of, you know, you move from songwriting into, to book writing. Um, and to me, those are all just synonymous with, with storytelling. Um, and so that's kind of, I think my niche is, is being able to connect with people, um, whether it's sitting down having a, a good bourbon or a beer or a glass of sparkling water, whatever your, um, uh, whatever your poison might be. But, uh, at the end of the day, my job or what I really enjoy is, is connecting with people, creating community and being able to share other people's stories. Yeah, no, I, that's, I can relate to that a hundred percent, man. That's, <laughs> you know, like when our family gets together, you know, the, the kids are always like, oh, t- dad, tell about the, tell about that story. They want to hear the same stories over and over again, you know? And I'm like, you know, then there comes a point where you can't help, but tell the same stories over and over again. Cause you start forgetting them and they all run together. But <laughs> it's the older you get, the, the, the more touchdowns you scored and the bigger, the fish you caught. Right. 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 Or the more stories you just kind of forget about. <laughs> <laughs> So, so tell me your story. How did, so how did you connect food with these stories? Where does this coming from, man? Yeah. So, I mean, I was really fortunate that, um, my mom's side of the family is, is of Lebanese kind of Catholic heritage, um, but really settled in, in South Georgia. So you take sort of Mediterranean cooking. My grandfather was a butcher, um, and you combine that with fried chicken, collard greens, mac and cheese. And I think you've created probably some of the best food that the world has ever had. Um, of course, my mom was a great cook as well. And so for me as a kid growing up, you know, I would come home from football practice. Uh, I'd have to do my own laundry. We had chores. And there's just a lot of vivid memories of me being in the kitchen and, and cooking and just learning um, the process of making a meal. But I think more importantly, and what we miss out on a lot of today is, is a family dinner. You know, I'm a father. Um, it's really important for me to connect on a nightly basis. I, I write these books because I'm typically cooking. Um, unfortunately, my kids and my wife end up being the test subjects on a, on a few <laughs> bad meals. But, you know, it's about sitting down and discussing the day, uh, everybody having a voice. And I think good food provides that opportunity for family. And, and that's something that I was really fortunate to have in my own home. Um, and it's something that I think is at the mission and of why I've written five cookbooks is I want people not only to uh, not be uh, stressed out by the idea of cooking a meal, but open up their, their homes to not only their family, but to, to neighbors and folks that you don't know. And so, you know, when I went to school at Georgia and we were playing music, we were traveling, you know, up and from Athens, Georgia, where we were in school, uh, the Southeast for a lot of um, SEC schools and parties up to New York and everywhere in between. And, kind of our favorite thing to do would be stopping along the way, whether it was, you know, Louisiana picking up a hundred pounds of crawfish or Kentucky picking up whatever, a, a smoked ham and throwing parties back in Athens. Cause we were never, never actually at our house. We were always working. And uh, I, I really learned at an early age, um, you know, in my college years that most men specifically and women too, didn't know how to cook. Um, so when I moved to Nashville and was playing music, um, had a great time, was touring, but I told a friend of mine who was an agent in the business that, um, maybe I wanted to explore this idea of writing a cookbook and kind of my hook was going to be teaching guys how to cook for girls. And at that time, if you had ever seen a book, it was more along the lines of like, cook this, get laid, um, which I, I don't think has ever happened. Mine was more like, you're a dude. At some point, you need to learn how to, to fend for yourself. And, and, right. and maybe if that happens, you can buy me a beer later. Um, and so I, I self-published a book called uh, Have a River for Dinner. There's a lot of content and, and stories about that, but I ended up kind of basically being turned down by every publisher and every agent in New York. And sometimes if you want to do something right, you just have to do it yourself. 
And so I bootstrapped that project um, back in 2008 um, and, and got started on it, learned how to do InDesign, learned how to do food photography, basically self-edited it. Um, I, I always say that I was really fortunate because I had no money. And so I had to learn how to do things myself. Um, and ultimately, that became a book that was named by the New York Times as one of the year's best cookbooks, which was, uh, to my knowledge, I think the first time that the New York Times had ever recognized a self-published book um, with that kind of recognition. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, New York Times, that's a hard, uh, it's a hard nut to crack, too, because you got people gaming the system and you've got, you know, you know, for them to, to recognize it, dude, that's a big deal. And uh, yeah, it was great. So what dude, there's so many stories here I could riff off of and so many things that you brought up. Let's talk about family dinner for a minute. Yes. Yeah. So how old are your kids? How old is your family? What's going on there? Yeah, I've got two daughters. They are six and eight years old, and it is happening at light speed. Uh, I think once they become five, uh, each year happens at like three, what, what feels like three-year increments. It's just uh, unbelievable how quickly that passes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I'm, my kids are all grown now. My youngest is still home, but she just graduated high school, and she's going to do – she's going to be commuting to, to cosmetology school. Um, Excellent. And we got grandkids. So, um, the, we used to have dinner together every night, every night, like without fail. And I had a, an evening job for a while. So then we had lunch and breakfast together every, you know what I mean? Like, like, and it is, it's, it's a sad thing when they grow up and move out. And then you, you're like, oh man, it's, it's a lot harder to be consistent with that. So, uh, we, we were able to do it tonight actually. And we just had like French toast sticks and scrambled eggs. Cause that's all we had in the house. But <laughs> I know the old, uh, silly supper breakfast for dinner. Yeah. Um, you know, to me, it's, it's really not about the food. It's about the, the practice, right? Um, it's a great excuse to, to sit down and, and, and talk about the day. And, you know, for, for young girls at this age, it's really important because not every day is a good day, you know, mm -hmm. and might be a kid at school or, uh, a test coming up, um, and it gives them the opportunity to find their own voice, and you're you're breaking common bread, and and you can share those types of things. And I think that, you know, that's an area that I think ultimately we've sort of gotten away from culturally. That you know we're so busy from sports practices, we got to do all these different things. But sometimes we just need to slow down and pause um, and enjoy a meal. And it doesn't have to always be a home cooked meal. I know a lot of people want to order takeout, or they've got a delivery service. That's fine. I, I really care more actually about the practice of being together than I do necessarily being in the kitchen. Of course, I'm a bit biased that, you know, my books are providing you, I think, really great templates of simplicity so that you can riff off of these recipes and create your own favorites. And there's nothing that brings me more joy. <clears throat> you know, when I write these books, I was doing an event in um, just outside of Atlanta, Georgia. There's a beautiful place called Barnsley Gardens. And it was a book signing, kind of a weekend where we're teaching how to grill over live fire. And you get all the, I call them the barbecue crew that comes out. And they want to tell you everything they know, mm -hmm. uh, even though you're supposed to be the expert. And uh, this wonderful couple came to me and they had my second book, which is called A Southern Gentleman's Kitchen. And in that book, I wrote a, a recipe about a, a grilled pork tenderloin with a blackberry barbecue sauce. And it was really inspired because when I was in school, um, I worked at the unit, uh, USDA seed plant. It was the Department of Agriculture. Um, we would drive combines and rogue wheat fields and pack wheat. And it was this whole thing. And on Fridays, we got a little bit of a break and we could get on the zero turn uh, lawnmowers and tractors and cut this probably about 14 acres. And I found a blueberry or a um, blackberry patch. And I would just kind of hang out. My friends were cutting the grass. And I would just sit over there and pop pop these recipes. And so that kind of inspired the story. And that was one of the things that when you write a cookbook, you really want to create personal memories as to why these meals are important. And this couple brought to me this book and it was like destroyed. I mean, it was stained, it was tattered. The, the corners were bent in, the pages were ripped out, but that page had literally, I think 15 or 16 entries with the date, the people that were with them and the comments about the meal. And obviously there were other recipes, but that was kind of their favorite one. And and for me as a writer, like that's it. That's that that brings you all the uh, the satisfaction. It's not about the other accolades, but just the fact that you're providing something that people are um, enjoying with their loved ones or with friends and strangers, as I mentioned earlier, um, that's really meaningful as a writer. I love the idea of like journaling in the cookbook. Like that's a that's a neat concept. <laughs> 
So yeah. what, uh, what's your go-to recipes like that, like your family, like, like when they find out that's what you're making for dinner, that they're excited about, what, what, what are those ones? Surprising they're, they're not tired of it. Uh, <laughs> you know, I think in my family, kebabs are always on the, the weekly routine. Um, so I think that's a lot of the Mediterranean kind of Lebanese influence. So I, I love to grill. I think there's something just um, atmospheric, kind of primal, um, manly, I, I would say, just about being outside at the grill. Um, if you had a long day, light some charcoal, you know, smell the fire, smell the smoke, and, and be able to participate in that. And so a kebab is a really simple recipe for me to um, churn out. And my kids love uh, maybe a Greek salad or something along those lines, which is a great dish. So we eat a lot of, you know, lean, healthy proteins, um, a lot of fresh vegetables. And I think that anytime you put something on the grill, it really enhances those flavors. So that's, that's probably a go-to that my kids are still not tired of, uh, I guess, eight and six years later. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. So when it comes to grilling, uh, I've got several, right? I've got one of the combo that's gas and charcoal. And then uh, I have a Holland grill. Have you ever yeah. messed around with a Holland? I got one. It was yeah. my father's. I actually won it for him in a radio contest. Long story. Um, <laughs> and then uh, I just got uh, a griddle, you know, a Blackstone. Yeah. And everybody comes up like, why do you need so many? Why do you need so many grills? And I'm like, because you've got so many different ways you can cook it, right? Sure. <laughs> yeah. I mean, for me, I've got what my wife calls is the Q cave, right? So um, the benefit is that I have as many grills as I do pairs of cowboy boots, but there's a lot of different applications. If you really look at the landscape of grilling, um, you know, about 75% of Americans own a grill. And of that 75%, um, 75% of them actually own a gas grill. So it's a, it's a huge market, still the gas grilling market because it's convenience. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think there's a lot of utility with a great gas grill and I own a gas grill and I use it often. Um, it's hard to sacrifice or, you know, shortchange the flavor that you get from, you know, charcoal grills. And we could go down a rabbit trail of hardwood, lump charcoal, briquettes. You know, I think each one has its purpose. I think what's exciting um, is I was just with a, a major grill manufacturer just a few months ago. And you are seeing the entree of, you know, pellet grilling and also the, the ideas of flat tops or griddles are also, you know, kind of shaking up the grilling space as well. And so for me, um, as long as you're not getting in trouble and not bursting the family budget, get as many grills as you can. <laughs> I'm going to come out with a book. My, probably my last book is going to be like Motley Crue, Grills, Grills, Grills. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> oh, that's great. That's a good joke. Yeah, your, your kids would groan at that one. <laughs> well, the thing you was, right? <laughs> So what is your favorite meal to cook? I mean, you've talked about your families. What is your favorite yeah. meal to cook and eat? My last meal is seafood gumbo, but I have to make it. Um, there's something so beautiful and nuanced about a delicious gumbo. Um, most of my hobbies have turned into work. It's funny how that happens as you age. Uh, probably any of my hobbies outside of cooking, I, I don't play golf. I like to fly fish, so I haven't turned that into work. Um, I once aspired to be a guy, but I really wasn't that good. Um, aviation is probably my hobby, but it's also kind of become my work because I, I fly a little small Piper Cherokee. Um, and that's how I accomplish and travel time to, to write books and, and be able to be in a thousand different places at one time. But usually once a year, I, in the fall, kind of set up this idea that I'm going to make my seafood gumbo. We're going to have, you know, 50 people, friends ever uh, from all parts of Nashville and I like to fly down to, you know, Lafayette, Louisiana or New Orleans, pick up my ingredients and get really great seafood, um, tasso and, and andouille and those ingredients, and then come home and spend a day or two making the roux, making my stocks, and then ultimately to, to deliver um, the, the most expensive seafood gumbo that's ever been made by the time you pay for the aviation fuel. But there's just something magical about that dish. And it's, it's got a lot of similarities to barbecue, you know, time and temperature equals results. Patience is a payoff. Um, but that's definitely something that I look forward to. And, um, you know, we're coming around that fall season where gumbo is going to be, uh, uh, coming, coming its way. And I, and I start with like a summer gumbo where it's really light, light roux, maybe just some, some shrimp or crab. And then all the way into like the depths of February, 
where it's a really, really dark brew and I might be using wild game like venison or something like that or a rabbit um, and just kind of coming throughout the season. But that's one of my favorite dishes to make because it's constantly changing. Now, do you hunt to get your wild game or do you have another way of getting that? Yeah, no, I mean, in my past life, um, it, it's something that I, I do enjoy. I'm not, a, I'm not, a, I'm more fisherman than I would say uh, hunter. Um, somehow, somehow when you start having kids, a lot of the things you prioritize at a younger age, they're just now getting to the, the age where I'm starting to introduce them to, um, obviously they've been fishing, but kind of their first time out camping. And, you know, I think the intention uh, of being a girl dad is to also show them um, what it is to be a sportsman and, and, and also enjoy the benefits of it as well. The challenge with that, with the girls is once you teach them to shoot, they're going to show you up every time. Oh, they every show time. me up. Yeah. I'm outnumbered at this house, man. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the, the girls, for whatever reason, you know, they, they don't, you know, my wife, we took her shooting and she's only been shooting a couple times and like every shot, every shot she hit. It. And I'm like, yeah, this takes this takes the fun out. Yeah. <laughs> You're driving home silent. What's wrong with you? Nothing. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm sure somebody will give me a lecture about fragile masculinity, but it's just the truth. It's <laughs> you know. Oh, that's great. Um, so now I know that uh, we, our family, have always liked to garden. We have got a, a small garden now. Um. And in the past, we used to raise chickens and meat chickens and, and meat rabbits and, and process them all ourselves. And, dude, there's nothing like having a meal where everything on the table is something that you grew in your backyard. That's one of my favorite one of my favorite things. And we can't do that now, obviously, because who's got time to do all that now? But but uh, but that's a pretty cool experience. Do you do you garden or, or grow any of your own ingredients? Uh, funny story. I, I live in uh kind of the, the hip, cool part of Nashville. And um, my wife and I redid a historic home here in 2020. Um, and it was hit by a tornado uh, when we had the EF4 tornado that, that hit Nashville. Um, that, that Christmas, my in-laws had come in town and I was talking to my mom and doing the job that I do oftentimes Everyone's looking at me like, well, what's, what are you making today? And what's happening? And listen, I don't care if your in-laws are the greatest people in the world. At, at a certain point, my grandmother used to say, it's, it's like a fish after three days, it starts to stink. So I'm <laughs> talking to my mom and she was like, well, why don't you get outside and do some yard work or something? When we had moved into this house with young kids, um, I looked at the shade. I'm a big grass guy. I looked at everything. I evaluate everything. I said, mom, I said, I would, but I said, I'm the idiot that installed about 2000 square feet of AstroTurf in our backyard. I have nothing to do. <laughs> so when you mentioned gardening, um, I do have a little planter box, but <laughs> for fresh herbs and, and maybe a plant of tomatoes, but man, you got me on that one. I got, I got a beautiful front yard uh, that I obsess over and aerate a couple times a year, but the backyard is just a, a blower and I'm on my way. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with that, man. Nothing wrong with that. This is the Manlyhood Mancast. Uh, especially, you know, look, man, you're cooking and writing books. So who's got time for all that, right? Yeah, there, there will be a day. There will be a day. I'll get back to my uh, USDA days of, of combining and, uh, you know, Rogan wheat fields. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> so... Uh, you've written several cookbooks. How many have you written? Yeah, I've, I've written five. Five. Awesome. And now what's, what are the, uh, could you tell me a little bit about each one so we can kind yeah, of. Sure. Um, first book was called have a river for dinner. It was the one that I had self published. Mm -hmm. Um, again, kind of the backbone of it was just teaching guys at some point, you got to cook a meal and you can be a gentleman about it. Um, you know, that allowed me the opportunity, uh, for my second book, which is called a Southern gentleman's kitchen. Uh, that was really my attempt to to teach men they can become better men through food and through the kitchen. You know, we talk about the Southern gentleman. Um, to me, that is, uh, you know, generosity. It's chivalry. Um, maybe more importantly, it's hospitality and intellectual curiosity. The idea that you're never um, you never stop learning. And so that's a, a really beautiful book. It obviously, has a Southern slant. There's a lot of fishing and game. In that book, we did a you know a redfish trip in 
uh, Louisiana. We went and did a wild boar trip uh, where we shot. Um, it was actually all all bow hunting, but uh, somehow I careened a friend of mine, uh, Greg Arnett, who started Arnett Goggles back in the day, and he had this unbelievable helicopter. So there's a picture of me with a bow and arrow flying around at 3,000 feet on this helicopter, which is completely Hollywood. It was completely staged, uh, <laughs> but it was really cool. We got the picture. <laughs> yeah. um, and so there's folks like Luke Bryan, uh, country music singer, friend of mine, John Stinchcomb, who played for um, the Saints. And, and it was just my chance of kind of starting storytelling about people that I think are doing some really cool things and exposing this idea of manliness and manhood. Um, and then from there, my publisher at the time had said, hey, look, you just gave away 150 recipes talking about your family. These are all yours. What if you went on the road and you you found people that were really interesting and told their stories? And maybe we, we focused on an angle of barbecue. Um, and that was really awesome. I, I mean, I, I, kind of an interesting, I'm like, I'm not, not necessarily a journalist, but I'll, I'll give it a try. And so that book eventually became the South's best butts. It's not a calendar, it's a cookbook. Um, <laughs> and it focused on the pork shoulder, um, you know, just kind of being the mechanism that we traveled to all 12 states that make up the barbecue belt. And I was able to identify a pit master and, and go in and kind of get their method for that particular cut. And then of course, all the sides and trimmings that, that made up that uh, particular world. And that really started me down this path of kind of being onto something. And I really love the idea of it, it's not about me. I'm just the grand conductor in the circus. And I'm going to use my uh, platform and profile to be able to introduce you to a lot of cool people that are doing interesting things. Uh, followed that in 2020 with a book called Serial Griller, um, where we took the exact same format. Um, you know, perhaps there's power in, in, in the number 12, but we stuck with 12 people and we, we traveled the entire United States and, and focused on the art of live fire. So all the goodness that came from barbecue was slow, low and slow cooking. Cereal Griller celebrates what we refer to as the Maillard reaction, everything hot and fast, uh, promoting that scientific you know, uh, balance between amino acids and enzymes that happens at elevated temperatures to promote grilling. And then uh, 2023 of this year just released uh, my latest book, which uh, you're always biased. You always want to feel like it's your best, but I certainly do. It's, it's called Butcher on the Block. And that gave me the opportunity to explore not only the worlds of barbecue and grilling, uh, but it, it, I was no longer bound by a cooking method. I was bound by low and slow and I was bound by hot and fast. Now I've got low and slow. We've got a lot of barbecue in there. We got a lot of grilling in there, but we also have roasted, fried. We have raw recipes. And it also didn't limit me to a set of ingredients. I think when you think about the butcher, you limit yourself to just meat or potentially game. Uh, but it was really important for me as a writer to also expose people that are doing interesting things like vegetable butchering, which is really a thing. Um, obviously, the, the world of a fishmonger, well, they're kind of a, a seafood butcher. And so we feature kind of an array of not only techniques, but ingredients as well. And we travel not only from Chinatown in San Francisco to the Bronx in New York, to Enterprise Alabama, to New Orleans, but also to the south of France, um, just to showcase what's transpiring in that world and all the recipes that come from it. Hmm. That sounds like like a really cool book. <laughs> well, all of them do. They 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 have a lot of, uh, like you said, the depth in the storytelling too, which that's something that m most of the cookbooks that I own don't have the good stories. They just have the yep. recipes. And I think that's, yeah, I think that, I think that, uh, there's a there's a, a an avenue there to make that book a lot richer when you're showing those stories and stuff. So yeah, I mean for me, I, I want you to if you sit down on a Saturday morning with a cup of coffee, I want you to be transported to Williamsport, Pennsylvania, where you meet a guy named Vince DeSalvo. Uh, I met Vince because American Airlines kept canceling my flights out of Williamsport, and it was the best meal I had in town. And uh, we struck up a friendship, you know, and and he's someone who organically came into my life uh, and is a super talented chef. And, and we had this beautiful ritual of breaking down a whole hog, which was done in the Italian family tradition. And in fact, when I asked him to be a part of the book, uh, I had met him the week that his father had passed probably seven or eight years ago. Um, and when I picked up the phone, I said, Hey, listen, you know, the last time I, I had met you, you, you talked about this tradition where you, you would break down a whole hog, you would cook the, the trimmings for breakfast, you would make your salumis and your copas and all these things. And he, he, he said, I haven't done it since he passed away. 
Um, and so he invited his son, who is now living in Charleston, and, and one of the cousins. And you know, it was a it was an incredibly um, serendipitous moment that the world collided um, for us to be able to do that and capture it in print in real time. You know, we live in this digital age where people create TikToks or they create a video, and they can go back and they can edit it, they can change it. And once I put a book out, man, that's it. Like, I can't call the printer and say, hey, do you want to modify this page? Can we switch that picture out? And so I think there's something really, really beautiful about work that sort of stands the test of time. You get to slow down, you get to read the stories. And similar to the blackberry barbecue sauce that I talked about, you know, uh, I hope I hope my recipes and my stories are inspiring. You know, everybody has recipes and stories. Even when I tell people I'd like to potentially include them in my book, the first First few folks might say, I don't, I don't really have a story to tell. And I'm like, oh, just, just wait. Like that's, that's my job is to come meet you and, and pull that back out of you. So our family created my wife, it was my wife's idea, but she decided to collect all of the family's recipes before my brother got married. And we gave that to them as a wedding gift. Well, then when her sister got married, we did the same thing. And it, and then she added her family's more of her family's recipes in it. And then, uh, we just it, we have a Google Doc now too, so that we can keep adding and we share yeah. it, and so the whole family now has it, and uh, and they all they use it, which is kind of fun because then we we're able to pass down those those recipes, you know that that my grandma Dini, who isn't with us anymore, we can make her her recipes and uh, and her. Uh, you got to be careful, like my mom sandbags her recipes. You know what I mean? This grandma Dini, like. You know, there's a quarter, a quarter teaspoon of mustard powder, powder that she doesn't tell you about. You know, right. I, I, listen, I know, I know how those family recipes go. Yeah, no, no, we, um, we made sure to, to, uh, to get the the real recipe. The other thing Zoe did is she actually went. My mom was like, "Well, I don't know how much everything is. I just kind of eyeball it." So, because my mom is an amazing cook, and so yeah. uh, Zoe, my wife, went over and she actually like, uh. <laughs> measured everything that she was throwing in. <laughs> so we have a pretty accurate recipe there. So that's great. That's great. That's awesome. Yeah. And that, you know, that was the beginning of cookbooks. I remember as a kid, uh, the neighborhood I grew up in, they would do a kind of a neighborhood association cookbook every two to three years. And, you know, they were all the ones spiral bound, yep. no photos, typeset font. And um, everybody would tell a little bit of story as to where they were from, you know, I, I grew up in Georgia, but there was a family from Boston. There was a family from California. And I, I think sometimes, you know, reading those stories, it can kind of expose you to different geographies and kind of open up um, what you may not be used to. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So you talk about entertaining people, having friends or even strangers over and you're cooking for them. So let's say, you know, you're going to have a party and you're going to invite all your buddies over. What's a good recipe for that? What would you do? Like if, like, let's say, hey, I'm like, hey, man, I'm going to be in Nashville. I'd like to get together. Let's let's throw something together. You know, what, what are you going to Depends gonna... on how much time I have, right? Uh -huh. um, this could actually be a, a really good piece for why I think the butchering book is, is so useful. Um, there's a lot of butcher cuts that are out there that are super delicious. They just need the right attention and the right technique to deliver outstanding flavor. Um, you know, I, I go to the old butcher case and everybody looks for the fillets, the ribeyes, uh, the strip loins, and then they forget about cuts like a flank steak or a hanger steak or a Denver steak, um, or even a top sirloin or even a London Royal. Um, and so for me, when I'm entertaining, I'm often thinking about what recipes can I do that are, are delicious. Um, I don't think anybody's ever left my house saying, man, I that Matt Moore is a nice guy. He's a good cook, but God, I wish he, I wish he'd serve this a little bit more food. I mean, I'm going to, I'm going to cook. If it's 50, I'm cooking for 150. Um, and so I think a lot of times entertaining can be expensive. And so part of butcher on the block is teaching you that you can still pull off really, really delicious meals, just maybe using a different technique or cut. Um, so to maybe just give you a couple ideas, like if I had time, uh, we'll go back to the barbecue world. We have uh, like a Greek style smoked pork butt. So we treat it like traditional Southern barbecue with a rub of, you know, salt and pepper and garlic powder, but we stud it with garlic. So it's almost like a Sunday roast style. And then we cook it under drippings of, of red wine and some, 
some vinegar and those types of things. And instead of serving it on a barbecue sandwich, we might wrap it in pitas with some tzatziki and some you know feta cheese and those types of things. So it's kind of this lovely smoky barbecue sandwich vibe that has a Mediterranean slant to it. I just need to have, you know, at least about eight to 10 hours to smoke those pork butts the way I want them. Um, the converse to that, you know, we do a, uh, what's called the beef hammer. I don't know if you've seen it. It's like the opening page of the book, you know, brisket, shoulder clod, those cuts can become more expensive. Um, and so again, if I have time, the beef hammer is actually the beef shank and they French the bone. So you have this big mass of meat and then you have the bone. So it looks like a big hammer. Uh, sometimes people call it Thor's hammer. That's really popular in Germany. The, the Germans love the beef hammer, uh, which is so funny on social media. But that again pulls like a brisket, and you can do kind of a barbecue sandwich. If I'm looking for like a steak dinner, um, you know, I would use something like a flank steak. Uh, there's a beautiful recipe um, of a grilled flank steak, and if you've never cooked a flank steak, one of the problems that a lot of people have. So it's it's kind of this lean muscle, and it, it kind of runs across uh, the flank of the the animal. And, and the grains kind of move along this pattern, the striations of the muscle. And even when you put it down on a hot grate, it's really sometimes hard to get that Maillard reaction because those, just the, the striations of the cut make it really difficult. So what I do is I actually take a knife and I create a cross hatch in the actual flank. So it's already a really tender cut, but by doing that, it kind of loosens up and it allows me to get more char, more burn. And then I do a really simple, what's called a board sauce. Um, there's a great chef, Adam Perry Lang. He's probably doing the most exciting things in barbecue right now. And he's in California. Um, and he's doing a, he, he's known for a board sauce where he takes, you know, ingredients and then actually slices the meat on the board, which the juices incorporate into whatever you have. So that's kind of my homage from his style. And in that recipe, we have shallot, we have caper, we have Dijon mustard, um, and once you kind of toss those all together, it's a really flavorful, delicious dish. So you're using flank steak, which is half the price of a call brand. We're slicing it into thin slices. We give it amped up flavor. We prep it. We cook it the right way. And listen, I, I love eating just as much as the, the next big guy. But when you often have a, a piece of meat that's cut into portions, you know, I'm not going to sit there and eat 12 ounces of a, a whole ribeye. I might eat four to six ounces of that and move on to the next thing. So you're able to actually stretch that meal. That's, a, I think, a really big entertaining tip that's out there. If I was cooking for, like, my wife's friends and they weren't into steak, but they often crave, like, something super tender, I think a pork tenderloin, super affordable. Um, it shouldn't be overcooked. Most people overcook their pork, stop cooking it to 160 degrees, you know, pull it off at 130 degrees and let it rest to 135, 140. It's going to be perfect every time. So there's a lot of thoughts out there in terms of affordability, utility, um, and making sure you're kind of matching the meal with the season and the crowd. Man, I'm just getting hungry, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> like, man, those scrambled eggs didn't go very far. <laughs> so let's talk about your first book a little bit. So let's say I'm I'm uh, I'm wanting to romance a lady. All right. What's what's gonna yeah. work? what's gonna work? Man, I've been married for 10 years. I've been out of the game, bro. <laughs> Uh, my go-to is always pasta, you know, comfort food. Um, you know, that book was more about really breaking down the barriers of, of getting folks into the kitchen and affordability. I, I think the main reason I wrote that is, you know, at the time, uh, this is going back to, to 2008 and 2009, 2010, uh, eventually when it came out, because books do take some time to write. Uh, let's say that you were going to make a lasagna and you went out to, you know, a website and you, you Googled the ultimate lasagna, you're going to go out there. You've never cooked in your life. You think it's a good meal. It's a comfort meal. It sounds like something you could do. And they're going to tell you to pick up pork, beef, veal. They're going to tell you to get mozzarella, Parmigiano Reggiano, you know, all these different ingredients. You spend $120. You come home, you spend six hours assembling it. You're not sure if it's good. And, and maybe it doesn't turn out right. Um, I think we're actually like, taking people out of the kitchen when we make it expensive and not approachable. So when I wrote that book, I was trying to say, all right, keep olive oil in your house, keep a good salt in your house, maybe some vinegars, maybe some fresh herbs. We're not going to go crazy. And then I'm really going to ask you to pick up like five ingredients and we're going to make a meal. Um, and so there's a lot of simplicity in that book. 
Um, there's a couple pasta recipes. I got to go back in my mind 13 years to think of all what was in there. Um, but I think anytime you serve something along those lines, it's, it's kind of uncomplicated. And there's an old saying that I still live by that a meal is only as good as your ingredients. And so if you're going to pick up something, you know, go, go to the local butcher, like a, a you might pay more for a dry aged cut of, of, of beef, and it could be a smaller portion of a, a filet if you're serving like something like that, but the quality is going to be that much better. And it's worth paying, you know, sometimes two times the price um, because you're going to get that payoff and still serving a steak dinner. Like, I mean, my wife's favorite thing is like a good filet with a, a baked potato. So I'm going to spend 90% of my food costs going to the filet and 10% going to the potato, but I'm getting that same payoff. And I didn't have to run out to a steakhouse and, and spend $300 on a, on a steak dinner. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you could do it yourself. We, uh, we were just meeting with a, like a finance counselor the other day to kind of work on her budget and get a, you know, some direction, you know, and, uh, you know, we've been going out for date night every, every week. And I'm like, you know, I think we could stay in for date night every other week and we can save quite a bit and still have a good experience. So, yeah, you know, I think, yeah, I think and you want it that idea. You know, it's not just the meal. Like if you're going to date at home, I remember when I was writing the book, it was about clean up your place, you know, like <laughs> specifically start with your bathroom. Uh, this is if you're still dating and married, clean up your place. Uh, nobody wants to eat in a dirty home or a dirty kitchen, you know, so setting that that ambiance is important. You know, I think music is important. Uh, you know, as I mentioned earlier, sometimes a, a good glass of wine or uh, maybe a good espresso after the meal. Um, you know, if you don't have time for a dessert, that's, that's the perfect time to go patronize your, your local bakery or something along those lines. But I think keeping it less complicated and kind of clean and efficient, it should be relaxing. It shouldn't be a stressful experience because if you host that date night, you're going out to a restaurant because you want to be entertained and have an experience and you're paying a premium for that atmosphere. You kind of need to bring that same element into your home, make it special, um, and maybe prep the day before. And, and like you said, you're going to get the same bang for your buck and you'll often be more comfortable. And for me, you know, when it comes to like steaks and certain things like that, or a gumbo, as I mentioned earlier, I'm going to be most happy if I source that from, you know, one of my favorite butchers here in town, Porter Road, they dry age everything minimum 15 days. I know I'm going to get a way better cut and I prefer to cook it the way I want to have it. And I enjoy that experience more than going out to the 30 different steakhouses that I have the choice of here in Nashville. Now, my wife might tell you that she would like to go out on a date. <laughs> right. 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 It's, it's the extra ambiance of getting out of the house, especially if especially you got kids at home. Sometimes it's nice to get out. Indeed. So uh, you mentioned earlier, you, we talked, you just kind of hinted at Venice. And, you know, a lot of our listeners are, are hunters. They're out They're They're getting game. So let's say, and I just got my hunting license for the first time this year since I was a kid. So I'm going to get out and try to get myself a deer. What do I do once I get it? You know, I, I'm actually pretty good at breaking it down. You know, I've, yeah. uh, but, but what would I do? So let's say I've, I've got all the meat ready to go. What's a great venison dish to make? Well, I mean, I remember there's a great story of my buddy, his name's Miller Gunn. He lives in, um, lives in New Orleans now. And we were living downtown Nashville and he went hunting one day and he, and he brought a, uh, a deer or a doe he had shot uh, in the back of his truck and it just, just gutted it. I mean, essentially not even really a true field dress. And then we got away with this 15 years ago in Nashville. We picked it up on legs and just chunked it up to the apartment and started working away. Now I was kind of hiding my cuts. I was taking, I was like, I'll process it for you. But I was taking the things, you know, the first things that I think everybody leans to is the back strap. Right. Um, and so that's obviously part of the, the loin, eventually the tenderloin as well. Um, so I think a lot of people kind of have their favorites for, for those types of pieces. Um, again, I love to, um, for a lot of folks that have not had game, I like to really lean heavy towards my kind of Mediterranean influence. I think that's a great time that you can use um, maybe a touch of vinegar to kind of take out, you know, there shouldn't be gaminess. People go through all these processes. We soak it, we do this, we add this, like, like let it speak for itself, but maybe complement it with some of the different ingredients. Um, so specifically in Southern Gentleman's Kitchen, um, one of my favorite recipes is actually a venison gumbo where we take the hind quarter, which is going to be a tougher cut, and we break that down. Or maybe you might get, get it from your processor as like a roast. Um, and we break that portion down and we create uh, this beautiful, tender, almost like a beef vegetable style soup. 
uh, that you can use because it does need the right proper time and temperature to break it down. Um, when it comes to ground pieces, we've kind of talked about the loin pieces. Again, I might treat that in a kebab where I'm going to marinate olive oil, red wine or balsamic vinegar, tons of garlic, oregano, salt, pepper, put it on the grill. And I really prefer to have that almost just rare plus uh, or mid rare if I'm cooking that because it's going to dry out so quickly just based on the leanness of that meat. Um, another one of my favorites, if you do have a grinder or you're processing, um, again, kind of with that influence, this will change your life. You can do it with lamb, you can do it with burgers, but it's kind of like a kafta. Um, and so within that ground, uh, just take maybe if I had a pound of ground venison, you could sub it out with bison, lamb, beef, turkey, um, maybe about a quarter of a yellow onion, really finely diced or pureed, um, some fresh parsley, maybe a tablespoon or two, a clove or two or garlic. Um, I, my mouth is watering right now, too, <laughs> as I'm telling you, and then salt and pepper to taste. And again, those are kind of like little patties. Um, and that's one of the most delicious ways to, to prepare venison, because I think you get that almost kind of grass fed, rich, uh, you know, almost a beefy flavor, as you would say. And just having a little bit of that onion in it provides this sort of nuance that it, it's just a flavor that you keep want to go back to. You, you almost it's not overpowering, but it just adds a lot of that balance that I think a lot of people are, are fearful on. Do not do what one of my roommates after that, I remember a month or two later, uh, he brought his girlfriend over and she was going to have dinner with us. And he was like, don't, don't tell her, don't tell her what you made. I mean, like, I was like, Hey, hey don't make me a part of this. Okay. <laughs> and we're eating a, a spaghetti. Uh, Cause we had used the, the ground portions and um, you could obviously can make chilies and you can all different things with hind quarters and the roasts. And about halfway through, he said, Hey, how do you like eating Bambi? And, <laughs> I think she broke up with him. I mean, that was the end of it. And I, I kind of felt bad because I thought it was delicious. You know, up until that point, she was having a great time. So certainly don't go down that path. Yeah. Isn't it crazy how we have – so I, I just read something the other day, and there was a big scandal because I think it was Aldi had something, and there was horse meat in it. Oh. And, you know, like in Europe, nobody thinks anything of it. Like it's our yeah. American – you know, I mean, we, I mean, horses are important. We love horses. They're neat, but like, we're like the only country that doesn't eat them. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. For me, like that, there's maybe a fine line and I, I travel, I have a business in the South of France and, uh, oftentimes you're kind of like, huh, okay. All right. You know? And like, I think maybe in the moment, um, but if I started walking the aisles and saw that, I don't know, it might bring a little bit of pause. Um, but you're right. I mean, culturally, that's one of the things that I think sort of like to, to revisit the idea of the butcher. Um, if you've never gone to a local butcher shop, um, we also have a butcher in the book that's at my local Kroger grocery store. I think it's important, right? It's not a snobby book. Um, as I mentioned earlier, it's vegetables, it's seafood, but like, you know, there's good people that work at your major supermarkets as well. And, you know, the old school butcher shop, sort of what I think is like the gateway drug of the butcher shop. Um, we talked about a couple of things. Dry aging is something that a lot of your artisanal butchers are going to specialize in. And if you've never had a dry aged piece of meat, you got to go try it because that's a big differentiator. In the book, we give you a template for being able to do that at home. There's some new technology like dry aging bags that will allow you to do that safely. So that's kind of number one, fresh ground meat, right? I mean, if you've ever had a, a butcher that's taking uh, trimmings from those dry aged cuts, Oftentimes you might pay 20 or 30% more, but it's going to be fresh ground. You're going to get dry aged pieces, better pieces, better blends. And you make a burger, you make a meal out of that. You're going to taste the difference and you want to go for it. The last one that you often get that I think is kind of the under highlighted specialty. And it's, it's one of the first recipes that we do in the book is the sausages that are made in house. So it's kind of playing up that fresh grind, but a lot of butcher shops, familial, like my grandfather, Lebanese, there was a lot of that Lebanese style spice and culture to the sausages that they made, but they were also in Valdosta, Georgia, and they made a country sausage. So those sausages are also a great pickup that I think are worth stopping. And if you feel like, you know, the mom and pop butcher shop doesn't exist anymore, it was taken over by the supermarket, you know, it's moved out of town, you know, back in the old days, in the, in the early 1900s, and the late 1800s, people would move to towns, because there was a good butcher there. Mm -hmm. And now we're starting to revisit that idea, but I'll just tell you to look a little bit harder. So we go to the carniceria, you know, we, we visit places that it's a, you know, uh, Hispanic style grocery store, but oftentimes they are butchering in house. 
or to the Middle Eastern markets that have a butcher for to, to create the halal experience or to the Asian markets. So you may not have that traditional quote unquote mom and pop 1920s grocery store, but you've got a, a beautiful thing of people coming from all over the world and they're bringing their cultures, they're bringing their flavors and they're bringing these alternative cuts that I think are, are really unbelievable for you to try out at your next cookout. So I've actually thought a lot about this lately because, um, you know, I don't know if you've heard about this lab grown meat that they're, that the FDA has just recently approved, you know, and it's like, it just makes you not want to go to the grocery store because you don't know where it's from. And, but I think we're, we've lost that connection to where our food comes from. And so yeah. I really, I, I actually like the idea of going to, you know, you know, your local butcher, you know, maybe he didn't kill it, but he knows where it came from, you know, like yeah. no less degrees of separation between you and the source of the food, you know? There's a great um, two gentlemen here in Nashville, and they're nationwide. So wherever you are listening, just go to Porter Road Butcher. Um, you can Google it. And they're actually two chefs, um, James and Chris. And going back to that mantra of the meal is only as good as your ingredients, as chefs, they said that the meat wasn't good enough. Um, and, and James gave me this great quote uh, in his profile, because in the beginning of the book, we, we teach you how to break down a whole chicken. We teach you how to trim a beef tenderloin, how to French a pork chop, how to fillet a fish. I'll go back to this. Like, this is not a book about butchering. It's more about the butcher, but we do give you some basic technique. And if you have interest in learning how to butcher more at home, there are books that are 100 years old that still tell you all the ins and outs. Uh, most butchers learn through apprenticeships and actually kind of being in the field. Uh, but we do give you a little bit of splash. And James said to me, he said, I'm a butcher and I'm telling people to eat less meat, but I want them to eat better meat. Right. And so when you talk about that, uh, that world of knowing where your food comes from, not only did they open their own butcher shop because they wanted a better product, but they've taken it to a full vertical integration where they have farms in Pennsylvania and Kentucky and Tennessee and they're growing their own livestock, they're harvesting that, they are processing it, and they are aging it and delivering it, and they ship their products you know, across the, the country. So uh, again, you'll pay a bit of a premium, but they're asking you to eat less but better. Yeah, well, I think, I think that that would be a better way to do it, in my opinion. I think that we, uh, somewhere along the line, yeah, food became factory built, you know, from the ground up. Along with the jungle. Remember the Upton Sinclair novel? <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's, it's, I don't know why. I don't, well, I mean, I know why it's because our industrialized society is always looking for cheaper and more efficient. And yeah, man, I think there's something to, you know, knowing what your, your cow's name was. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, to play that forward, the, the grand theme of this book is community. Um, hopefully you're not like me. Like I love going to the local butcher shop, the grocery store, the bakery. Like I've got, I, I'm obsessed with going to these places. And so I've got friends that my, I have better friends that work at these places than maybe friends in my real life. Cause I see them so often, but you may go to a store once or twice a week. And that gives you an opportunity to create a friendship with somebody, right? Hey, you know, listen, I come in here and I buy the same thing. I don't talk to you. Like what, what should I be doing? Like I, I want to host some friends over and the butcher is the most underpaid chef or restaurant uh, or recipe deliverer because a lot of times they, they want to tell you, hey, oh, pick up this London broil. And, you know, when you bring it home, add this technique to it, make sure you marinate it and then make sure you cook it this way, turn it. And, and I promise you, you're going to serve a steak dinner at a quarter of the cost. And if they do that, then they want repeat customers. Remember, they're in business too, right? And so they want to offer you good advice and sell you a quality product because they want you to come back. And so for me, I think that you know, patronizing your local butcher, the butcher that might be in the supermarket that's hiding behind the lunch counter, whatever it might be, you know, striking up that friendship develops some trust. And I'm at a, <laughs> at a level with Tommy, who I featured the book. I'll call him on a Thursday and say, listen, man, I need 12 pork butts on Saturday. And you're not allowed to put them on the floor. I'm coming at 11 a.m. Don't tell anybody they're back there. Tell everybody they're mine. Put my name on it because I don't <laughs> want to show up and not have what I need. And so there's some utility uh, behind it as well. Well, honestly, I think if we operated everything that way, you know, like you're right. We have this culture that where we don't have, we're not making friends. You know, we just, we walk in, we buy our stuff. We don't talk to anybody. 
and it's not just food it's everything you know i I don't know i mean i think i think it's time to slow down a little bit (laughs) pay attention to what's going on we get to know people and yeah it's funny how interconnected we are now you know i mean you're in nashville and i'm in pennsylvania not far from williamsport by the way about two hours and a half so which Um, town are you in I'm in Bradford, PA, the home of the Zippo lighter yeah. and case knives are made here. So. I love it. <laughs> so, um, and, uh, you know, so there's an interconnection that couldn't have happened, but we're also lacking in that personal connection with our lives all around. Loneliness, dude, is at a all time high. Yeah. And it's pretty, pretty crazy. Yeah. We have more connections than ever. Yeah. Yeah. So I think we might need to change. <laughs> well, since we kind of, you know, now took it to a, a serious note <laughs> uh, that, that's not food related, let's, uh, I like to ask all my guests a couple questions. Matt, what does it take to be a man? Oh, man, you went straight there. Um, for me, it would be integrity. You know, that's, um, that's not something that is given to you, it's only earned. And I think that, um, if it's given away, it's, it's really hard to, to gain back. And, uh, ultimately there's, there's a lot of faster, cheaper, um, shortcuts, all the things that I think we as society, uh, can be lured by. But, uh, at the end of the day, I think that integrity is, is, is really at the heart and soul of, of what, what being a great man is. Yeah, I would agree with you, man. That's one of our principles that we're always harping on. (laughs) Um, and and it matters, you know, I mean, I think that what we're reaping as a society is, a, is the result of a lack of integrity. So, yeah. Uh, Matt, let's say you get your hands on a, on a DeLorean with a flux capacitor and you can get it up to 88 miles an hour and you can go visit 10 year old Matt. What do you want to tell him? Uh, the first part about that. I'm so glad you said that I, I've got in one of my businesses, I, I did that same thing. We were talking about a bit of a sales pitch and I was like, listen, it's not a flux capacitor. And I looked at the the room and these kids are 20 and 22 years old. They had no idea what I was talking about. <laughs> so I was like, man, I need to start tailoring my pitch a little bit differently. It's not, it's not hitting the same way it did, you know, 10 years ago. Um, you know, I think ultimately, probably the the most valuable gift that we are given um, is time. And when you become a a father, when you get married, when you get into your career and you get into the day-to-day mantras of of life, um, you realize how precious time is. But I would also say that at at 10 years old and and maybe even graduating to those that might be listening to this that are uh, maybe getting into graduating high school or college, like there is an immense amount of time um, that you have to to make mistakes. Uh, I'm not talking the one about the ones that take away your integrity, uh, or per- to pursue different paths. Um, and, and you're not going to be behind in life. Like you think about how many people that at the age of 50 decided, "Hey, I'm going to go do something," and by 58, 60, they had set themselves up for where they wanted to be, even though it took 40 to 50 years to find that moment. And so I think a lot of times you see especially in today's digital world, uh, this perception that everybody out there is making more money than you, uh, they're having more fun than you, and they have things way more figured out. Um, And I think that's really a negative negative thing for people to feel. And so if you feel like you're going to uh, go out and start a job and it's not going to give you uh, this ladder, this ladder, this ladder, there's there's probably a reason behind it that you have to become more mature. Um, There's certain reasons why you're going through certain processes and it's not just a software that's going to sell tomorrow or a new great app. You know, my world that I've been successful in, uh, specifically in writing books and, and doing those types of projects, um, our other business falls into uh, more of the, the manufacturing side of the world. And you know, I've got long-term contracts with people that are 70, 80 years old that tell me the people and, and have created integrity, have created great relationships. And in my, I wouldn't say maybe at 10 years old, you don't have to have it all figured out, but in those really uh, tough years of, of 18, what am I going to decide I'm going to do the rest of my life? You go to college, you go to cosmetology school, you go work in trades. Like there's opportunities throughout your life to reinvent what you're doing. And if you're not happy, you still have a lot of time to go out and do that. 
um, and, and don't live on someone else's calendar. You only have your own and, and you, 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 you use your time almost like a currency uh, to be able to spend it in the, in the best place possible. So a bit of a long-winded answer. And I might've graduated you from 10 to 18, but if I go back and look at like my, uh, my journey, I was in the music business. And when I graduated, um, played music all through college, probably the one thing I would have loved to have done um, after graduation is, is go out and, and spend a few years in the military and serve our country. And I was so uh, caught up with this idea that I needed to get into the business world and I had to go make money and I had to go do this. And if I did that, that would put me four years behind. Probably one of my biggest regrets in my life, like being 20 and then coming out at 24, th those four years would have been so foundational. And it's not just military, it could have been you know, some other experience but I felt like I had to get into the system, grind the system. And, you know, the reality of that is that you can reinvent yourself quite often. Um, I think as long as you maintain hard work, integrity, um, and, and you're passionate about what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. That's probably 18 year old Matt, but it's good. It's good. <laughs> Sorry. All right. 10 year old Matt would have said, Hey, listen, this whole baseball thing may not work out. Uh, <laughs> I told my dad that too. <laughs> I'd have been like, I've been telling uh 10 year old Josh, dude, don't throw away your Ninja Turtles. <laughs> <laughs> That's the best investment that you lost out on, man. Indeed. <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> um, so the next question is what is your best advice for the men that are listening today? Uh, a, a quote that still hits me just as strong today that nothing in the world can take the place of persistence. Like, couldn't say it, uh, Calvin D. Coolidge, uh, president of the United States, but um, there's a lot of people that have talent. There's a lot of people that have great ideas. Um, but I think persistence is something that has driven my entire success in anything that I've done. Um, I had to be persistent in the world of publishing, persistent in, in my other worlds of professional life. Uh, even in marriage, it requires persistence. Fatherhood requires persistence. And you know, I think if you wake up every morning you set good intentions, you maintain integrity, you're willing to hear the word no, um, maybe a hundred times a day, uh, you're willing to put yourself out there and be persistent, uh, but be earnest about it. Don't be a cynic. And, you know, to me, good things happen to good people eventually. And, and that's something that I really believe in. And, um, and you're gonna have failures. Like, I just, every day you have a moment where you say, okay, all right, this too shall pass. Um, but I'm going to keep putting one foot in front of the other. And, and good things are going to continue to happen. And I think a lot of people need to hear that. Yeah. That's good advice, man. I appreciate it. Of course. Right, thank so, you. So uh, what's the best way for our guys to connect with you and your books and the work you're doing, man? Yeah. So um, I'm not too busy on the digital world. I think my publisher would wish that I was more. Um, but if you just uh, go to my Instagram, it's probably one of the best ways you know, I, I try to live more in the moment and not stage. So I, I don't have anybody running that account. And if, if you want to hit me a message, happy to do that. It's just Matt R. Moore um, is, is my handle there. I have the same website. So just mattrmore.com. Um, and then, of course, for buying books, man, I, I love patronizing the local bookstore. Um, but, of course, you know, you can find my books anywhere books are sold. Awesome. Yeah. So we will link that in the show notes and, and list your books as well. So. That, yeah, they could go tell your local bookstore to get these in so that you can get them. That'd be the way to go. So I love that. Yeah, indeed. Awesome. Hey, man, thank you so much. This has been a great interview. And uh, yeah, man, I'm looking forward to that. Uh, the Middle Eastern seasoned pork is what sounds really good. That's that's going to be the smoked you know, Greek pork butt. You could yeah, be on a T-shirt, I think. <laughs> sounds awesome. Sounds awesome. Well, thanks, Josh. I appreciate you, man. Awesome. I appreciate you too. Thank you. This is the Manlyhood Mancast. Matt, thank you so much for sharing your perspective on the world, for sharing your perspective on what it means to be a man, and for sharing with us food. I cannot wait to cook venison that way, man. That sounds amazing. So, guys, if you are really excited about this this uh, work that Matt is doing, we want to show him some support. So make sure you check the show notes. We've got a link to his website where you can find his books. Uh, you can subscribe to his channels. Let's support Matt because he's doing good stuff. Uh, you know who else is doing good stuff? 
you guys are doing good stuff. I can't tell you how much I appreciate you, the listeners, for all that you're doing to help Manlyhood become something special. This is not just a podcast. This is not just a website. This is not just my thing that I do for fun or a hobby. This is a movement of men becoming even better men. And I'm so grateful that you're taking the time to level up for your family, for your community, for yourself. Keep up the good work, men. I love you. I'm proud of you. And I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Manlyhood Mancast. If you want to be a better husband, father, leader, a better man, you need to join our private Facebook group, the Manlyhood Man Cave. Join today. Please help us out with a like, comment, share, and subscribe. And check us out at manlyhood.com.